Welcome to the Therapy Thoughts Podcast. This is Tiffany Rowe. I'm a clinical mental health counselor and psychology teacher in Utah, and I want to change the mental health game. The Therapy Thoughts Podcast is all about breaking down therapy-related topics and making mental health information easy to understand and super accessible. So join me for quick and direct educational episodes and some deeper dives with experts from around the world. Together, we are going to break down stigma. We're going to help each other make peace with mind, body, and food. We're going to make therapy cool and invest time in our mental health. Let's do it here, one therapy thought at a time. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Therapy Thoughts. This is Tiffany Rowe coming at you live. Today, I get to interview one of the best OCD practitioners in the game. Kimberly Quinlan is my dear friend. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. She is the founder of cbtschool.com. It's an online psychoeducation platform, and it provides online courses for those with obsessive compulsive disorder and body-focused repetitive behaviors. Those are also called BFRBs, if you've heard of those. Kimberly's really, really cool. Uh, we become good friends in real life, though we've never met face-to-face. She is the host of Your Anxiety Toolkit. It's an awesome podcast. The podcast is aimed at providing mindfulness-based tools for anxiety, OCD, depression, and BFRBs. You're going to love this one. I want anyone with anxiety to listen to this. I want every therapist in the game to listen to this. Definitely anyone with obsessive compulsive disorder, spectrum disorders, or anyone who knows someone. This is such a good episode with just robust education. Uh, Kimberly, you, you angel. Thank you, my friend. Everyone enjoy. Uh, here's some therapy thoughts. Therapy Thoughts fam, we got a good one today. We have my friend, my girl, one of my besties, my confidant, like my soul sister. This is Kimberly Quinlan. Hey, it's good to be here. (laughs) Okay, so you are are someone who got my back early on in the Instagram game. And I don't know how we became such good friends like in, in real life without ever meeting in real life. I know it's crazy, isn't it? I often will say to my husband, yeah, my friend Tiffany, who I've never met. (laughs) My great friend Tiffany, who I've never met. (laughs) Which we were going to change that this year and then COVID happened. So weren't we? We were going to like hook up for a weekend or something. I know. We still have to go do that and just Mm -hmm. actually meet. But yeah, you're my dear friend. I just love you with all my heart. I'm so grateful we could arrange this finally. Yes. Yes. And just have real talk, which is what I love the most in a friend. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, When, you know, like the Therapy Thoughts podcast has evolved over time. At the get-go, I created this to like deep dive into like a specific topic every episode, especially when it's just me. But when I talk to someone, it's, you know, it it can weave into life stories and whatnot. But I, I feel like this episode could really deep dive into a topic because you have a niche and it is strong and you are a badass expert on OCD. Yeah. It's my favorite thing to treat. Why is that? 
I don't know because I, I don't have an I don't have OCD, but I um, wanted to treat anxiety. That was a specialty I wanted to treat, and the only place I could get an internship was at an OCD center, and I immediately fell in love with treating OCD, mostly because. I think the deep down reason is I always res when I look at an OCD case, which is someone who has obsessions and compulsions, and we can talk about what that is. I had an eating disorder and I always felt like my eating disorder better fit that description than it did some of the other people who I knew who had an eating disorder. So I feel like the mechanics of it really makes sense to me. Mm. Tell us what obsessive compulsive disorder is give us your your psych lesson sure sure so um ocd is more than just hand washing and jumping over cracks that's the main thing i want people to leave here today with so to have ocd you have to have an obsession which is an intrusive and repetitive and unwanted thought feeling an unwanted thought or feeling or sensation or an urge even and when you have that This usually causes a tremendous degree of anxiety and distress and uncertainty. In an effort to make that uncertainty and discomfort go away, the person with OCD will engage in compulsions. Now, again, we know the like what we would call like Hollywood OCD, which is jumping over cracks. The things that Hollywood show, jumping over cracks, closing doors open and close, or you know, washing hands. Compulsions can actually be either overt right? So you can see them, right? Or they may be covert, which is you would never even know they're doing compulsions. Um, Often they're doing a ton of mental rumination in their head. They might be doing some form of reassurance seeking. They may be doing some form of avoidance. Now, avoidance is a compulsion as, you know, as valid as hand washing or any other overt compulsion. So they will engage in these compulsions to try and resolve or remove the anxiety that they have. But the problem with that is then it reinforces the obsession and now you're stuck in a loop, right? Obsession, compulsion, obsession, compulsion. Usually someone with OCD will do this so much that it will interfere with the quality and functioning of their life. Often people, everybody has some small version of this, right? On a spectrum, they may do one minute of it a day or something, but someone with OCD who is really struggling will do it for two, three, four hours a day up to every waking moment of the day. Um, And it can be so, um, you know, so invasive that it can basically take away the entire functioning of some people, which is actually more common than we know. You posted a picture on Instagram today, obsessive compulsive disorder, like is not a thing or like OCD is not that. It was basically last year. I mean, the OCD community is having a little bit of a crisis right now because a lot of marketing companies are using the acronym OCD as if it's a good thing. Like, oh, I am so OCD about my kitchen. And what they're really saying is I really like my kitchen to be clean or Last year, unfortunately, Target brought out a um, a sweater that said um, obsessive Christmas disorder. Um, and, you know, I understand, you know, we want to sort of, you know, everyone loves a joke and everyone loves humor, but the OCD community found this really offensive because having OCD is literally hell. Like 
if you want to talk about terrorizing somebody, OCD is the description of it. It is the most terrorizing disorder I've ever treated. Um, I mean, equal to any disorder, I'm sure. But the unfortunate thing, and this is where, I, again, I started the whole conversation is the most common forms of OCD is not contamination OCD, right, or symmetry OCD, um, like we see in, you know, normal society. The most common forms of OCD are these really taboo topics, like what if I want to kill my partner? That's a form of what we call a harm obsession, a harm obsession, excuse me, my accent. <laughs> um, you could make there's pedophilia OCD, which is the uncertainty of wanting to hurt your child. Now, people with OCD are in no way would they ever want to do this. It's just that they have intrusive, repetitive thoughts that pound in their brain all day. What if you, what if you, what if you, what if you, what if you? Um, you know, there's religious obsessions. A ton of people have moral scrupulosity obsessions. There's relationship obsessions. Um, you know, you could basically have OCD about anything that you value, and it usually attacks the things that you value the most. So if you really love your baby, you might have thoughts that you might harm them or not do well by them. And so people, when it, going back to the Instagram post is people get really hurt when, you know, celebrities say, you know, oh, I love having OCD it means that my cookie jars are really evenly lined up or something. That's really heart heartful for them because they're thinking I would do anything not to have OCD. I think anyone listening can hopefully empathize with the terror and obsession and suffering you're describing. Like right. truly, truly just dominating in one's life and attacking the things that are most important. I mean, so yeah, a, a flippant twist or downplaying it like obsessive Christmas disorder mm. is really ignorant. It's stigmatizing and perpetuates, you know, misinformation about a really serious disease. Right. Right. And, and I think the reason that it's so painful is someone with OCD spends the majority of them, their day trying to figure out, whether their thoughts are real, right? Like, do I want to harm my baby? Am I a bad person? Do I want this thought? Do I want to sin? Like I'm having this re repetitive thought about, you know, you're a sinner or something. And so if someone gets on social media and says, oh, I love it, I want this, it makes them even more triggered, right? Because they're like, wait, what, do I want this? Well, I don't want this, but do I want this? So that's why, again, I think it's really difficult for them. And, and again, I, you know, I'm, I'm not ever if I'm sure everybody probably listening has said it once or twice, you know, it's something that is really commonly said here, like, oh, I'm really OCD about being on time, or I'm really OCD about, you know, having my no lint on my clothes. I'm I'm not saying that anyone's in trouble for saying that. I think it's just that with the the OCD community is trying to build awareness around, you know, similar to people who are bipolar and, you know, feeling offended by people saying, oh, I'm so bipolar today. And I, I, I want to kind of like just back up what you're saying. Folks in the OCD community, bipolar disorder community, eating disorder community, feeling offended isn't a weakness or a judgment on them. It's rightfully so. This is a call right. out to folks who use mental illness as an adjective. Right. That's what's problematic. Us being offended isn't problematic. It's not us being too sensitive or, you know, edgy about things. It's 
inappropriate and harmful to mm. use these words as adjectives. Mm. And I think, right. you know, especially in today's climate, are like people get so offended. That's not our. That's not the problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and the the benefit. The, I mean, okay, let's go right to the the real pain. Sci science and statistic. Excuse me. Science and statistics show that someone with OCD, the average person with OCD, takes between seven and fourteen years to be correctly diagnosed. That's horrible, right? Um, luckily, in the eating disorder community, if you have an obsession around body image or weight, most people are pretty well aware of what that looks like. And, you know, you can do a Google search to figure out what you need to do in most cases. If you're having a harm thought about someone or a, uh, you know, obsessions and compulsions around, you know, your baby or things like that, if we're projecting and portraying OCD as a funny thing or, you know, just something we do and it's not a big deal, it's going to make it less likely for someone to get the services and the diagnosis they need. And that's where the crisis is. You know, 14 years, that's horrible, right, for someone to take to actually be like, oh, my God, this is what I have. Oh, millions of other people have this. Oh, okay. I'm not crazy. You know what I mean? Mm. And so that is where this sort of that education is so important. This is the first thing I think is required to fight mental health stigma is to mm -hmm. change our language. Yeah. And folks may be listening like, ugh, we're so PC or like, uh, like whatever reaction you have to this, like we have to understand, like we all are harmed by mental health stigma and mm -hmm. downplaying or minimizing or writing this off as a joke is harmful. And it's the easiest freaking thing we can do to change it. Like, just don't be an mm -hmm. asshole. Like don't say <laughs> these words. Why Find other jokes. It? Yes. Like, it's not funny. Like get a better sense of humor. I'm getting triggered. I'm feeling worked up by this because mm -hmm. it really is the easiest least. It harms no one to not right. say these things, but it harms right. so many by saying them. So shoot, we're jumping in with like a really yeah. easy way to fight stigma and right. to not harm folks suffering. Right. Right. And my goal here, even just talking to you today is if one person could come on and be like, Oh, that's what I have. Or that's what I had that. I mean, there's so much shame in these obsessions. Like, so much shame. And so just being able to give it a name can take the shame away. Mm. Oh, this is OCD. That's what this is. Oh my gosh. For this whole time, I thought my whole identity was wrapped around what thoughts I'm having. No. How, okay. How do we help folks know if this is what they're dealing with? Like you said, with any mental illness, we all have symptoms, whether it's mild we ruminate because we said something a little weird in a presentation or whatever, or are kind of, you know, talking crap to ourselves. How do we know, how can someone know if this shame that they're experiencing is actually, you know, something that's not their fault. It's not a moral weakness. It's not a choice. It's obsessive compulsive disorder. How do we know that? Well, I think that always I'm going to suggest someone reach out to a mental health professional because the problem with, with what can get involved is what a court, because one of the compulsions is to ruminate. 
sometimes trying to figure out whether it's OCD or not can actually be a compulsion. Mm-hmm. But in basic sense, so I just want to like make sure I, I say that, always seek out a mental health professional to help you. Um, but I think the main thing to know is we all have little fears. Like you said, I went to a Christmas party and I, you know, did I say something wrong? You catch yourself sort of ruminating on it. Um, that that could be also classified as generalized anxiety. You're stressing about a real life stressor that happened in your daily life. When you start to notice that's taking over your day, it's impacting your functioning, it's repetitive, and that you're trying to get relief from your uncertainty in an urgent way, that's usually when we would direct towards OCD, right? So it's, is the obsession repetitive? Is it unwanted? Are you trying to solve it urgently, right? Is the tools that you're using to reduce your anxiety ineffective because a compulsion is ineffective you know you're an affirmation girl right I love affirmations the problem with affirmations is often people in the OCD community unfortunately they use them compulsively Mm -hmm. so for you and I who don't you know for somebody who doesn't have OCD they could say I am good I am loved I am one for someone with OCD we know that would be a compulsion when they're going I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And they're doing it with a sense of urgency to remove anxiety in a repetitive way. That's when we go, whoa, let's just slow down on that one. Yeah, this is this is really important. Education for folks listening, <laughs> trying to challenge the thoughts mm. or like focus on the thoughts is going to give you that opposite outcome yeah. when you're dealing yeah. with obsessive compulsive disorder, right? Yeah. The hard thing is, is that people with OCD will go on to social media and look at an anxiety site and be like, oh, they gave me these, like, stop thinking about it. And tools that work for us, generalized anxiety often perpetuate the OCD cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's so painful for them because for other people, there are these tools that work really well. And for, for others who with OCD, they can actually be really quite problematic. Now, what I will say is for people who are listening is uh, in no way am I saying there are right and wrong tools. Uh, everybody's different. It's just a matter of catching when you are using something with that urgency and with that sort of attempt to radically remove uncertainty, which is life, you know, life is uncertain. So let's say you did go to a Christmas party and you said something, you know, possibly inappropriate, let's say. Um, The answer is actually to just be uncertain and be compassionate and tolerate that, you know, the feeling of being imperfect. That's good stuff right? Um, that's the, that's the way out of having obsessions and compulsions. Okay. No big deal. You just gave us, you gave us the practice. Well, OCD is the uncertain disorder that, and the answer is always to be uncertain. And that sucks. Let's just say it. Let's just be right out. Uh, One thing, let me jump in and like, I'm answering a question. I'm sure you have, let's just go straight to it. The treatment for OCD is really hard. It's really successful. Science backs it. It's badass. It's awesome work. I love it. But it's really hard because you have to sit in discomfort for long periods of time and ride the wave of uncertainty. And that sucks. 
but we're just really honest about it, right? Right up front. Once you can wrap your head around that, you're 50% of the work's out of the way. <laughs> I like to validate people and to be like, it'd be weird if you liked this. Like you're having the right reaction. <laughs> well, interesting is what I've often said to clients and a lot of people who know me hear me say this all the time. If you want to see me and you have OCD, I'm doing something wrong. Yes. Right. You shouldn't want to come and see me. You shouldn't want to come to sessions with me. That means I'm not doing something right. I'm missing something. You should basically dread seeing me in my office and then I'm doing it right. (laughs) Because they have to sit in the suck. Yeah. In the suck. Yeah. Right. It's, it is. And the longer you can do it, the better you get. So tell us the name of the treatment that's research-based and badass and works, but sucks. Okay. It's called exposure and response prevention. It's a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm a cognitive behavioral therapy, and that is the gold standard for, you know, generalized anxiety, social anxiety, eating disorders, OCD, you know, a grand scheme of disorders. But the specific type of OC, um, excuse me, CBT for OCD is ERP. There's a lot of acronyms in that sentence. Exposure response prevention. The goal is to what is to sit in that uncertainty, to ride discomfort, to tolerate and to build desensitization to that like stimulation. Yeah. So let me back up a little just to be clear. So it's it's multifaceted. So there's exposure, which is where you stare your fear right in the eyes, whatever it is. Right. So we could everyone I swear to you. ERP is skills for life. I tell everybody this. I tell my kids, I have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old and we do ERP all the time and they don't have OCD. What's your fear? Let's stare it in the face, right? That's the exposure piece. The response prevention is then once you've stared your fear in the face, don't do anything to remove your discomfort except love the hell out of yourself, right? That's that's the tool. Like you just wrap yourself up in self-compassion and you wade through the day right? So that there's the exposure piece. And then there's the response prevention piece, right? Um, Once you do that, the goal used to be desensitization, right? Um, And that gave huge, awesome outcomes. But in the last 10 years, we actually have new research to show that if the goal is desensitization, that, that actually has a lowest um, success rate of relapse. The, the better relapse sort of prevention model is to expose everything you can with the goal of not having a reduction anxiety, but having a sense of mastery over any degree of discomfort. So I know that's really sort of subtle and it doesn't make that much of a difference, but for outcomes, it's huge, right? So if let's say you had a fear, um, let's say you had social anxiety and your fear was, will I, um, you know, will they judge me? We could do ERP, which is what we do, right? So I'd say, okay, I want you to go out and I want you to go to this Christmas party, you know, and I want you to, you know, speak to five people who you've never met and introduce yourself. So they would do that as the exposure. The response prevention would be then you're not to review or put yourself down or, you know, you know, afterwards not to seek reassurance. We, If you did that and you said, okay, the goal is just to prove to yourself that you didn't 
do anything wrong. That's great, but it hasn't got as good a research outcomes as saying, I want you to go just to prove that you can, right? And so that's what we do. You expose all you can, and the goal is to not reduce anxiety, but to tolerate any discomfort. Mm -hmm. Did I say that right? Yeah. To be a receiver of whatever shows up. So just to like validate everyone who's tripping, this is a complete paradox. It seems like the opposite of like survival. And like, I mean... So biologically, like we don't want to be in pain. We don't want to be uncomfortable. So people's reactions of like, no, like I'm literally going to die if I do that. That's valid. It's valid, but it's not true. Right. Yeah. And so this is the part I love about the work that I do. This is like where I say, like, this is where you learn your inner badass actually seriously exists, right? Like you can think you're a badass. And then you can know you're about us. They're two different things. And this is how you get there, right? Now, I'm not saying you have to go straight to the top of your hierarchy, right? Hit the hard stuff. Try the small stuff. You'll be shocked. This is the thing I have seen a million times. And again, I use this with my kids. I use this with my friends. Everybody knows this is what I'm about, is the most empowering thing you'll ever do is stare your fear in the face. I swear to you. It's the most empowering thing, right? I always say it's a beautiful day to do hard things. I know it's all my, my people are like so tired of me saying it, but it's because through doing the hard thing, you learn how strong you are. And you're right. It is a paradox and it is so hard, which is why you have to sort of fill up your cup before you do it, mm. right? You need to be super kind to yourself. You need to be super, you know, prepared for the fact that this is exhausting work but it works. Filling yourself up, understanding this is like emotional lifting and like literal energy expenditure. What else would you say other than self-compassion is like the work that has to be included Mm. to keep you safe and filled up to take Mm. on this kind of heavy lifting? Right. Well, it's mostly mindfulness, to be honest. It's a heavy on mindfulness. In fact, um, you know, we now call it mindfulness-based ERP or mindfulness-based CBT, right? So what you would do is while you do, you stay, let's say you're okay. Let's say you're afraid of dogs, right? My daughter was six when she started getting a fear of dogs. What did we do? I didn't take her away from dogs, we first looked at photos of dogs and then we looked at videos of dogs and we went to the dog park. Then we borrowed somebody's dog for the week, right? Like on steps. But while we do that, we practice being mindful about the experience. Oh, you're noticing a ton of discomfort showing up in your body. Can you tend to that kindly? Can you make this an opportunity where you actually use it as an opportunity to learn how to nurture yourself when fear arises, right? Can you be an observer? Oh, I'm noticing I'm having the thought that that dog's going to bite me, right? Just because you had the thought that the dog's going to bite you doesn't mean the dog will bite you. It means you're having a thought that it's going to bite you, right? And being super gentle with yourself. Because again, this is like seriously hard work. 
right? But it's doable, right? It's doable. You won't explode. I have never had a client explode in my office. I always say you get a free session if you explode, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. If you die, I will ride this session off. We, I won't charge your credit card. Okay. So I want everyone listening. Cause if you've ever been my client, you all, I mean, you always kick back when I say anxiety is not going to kill you. No. So uh, here's the expert, Kimberly Quinlan, the boss. She has a message. You literally cannot die. Are you, is that what you're saying? I'm saying, well, I'm not saying that because I want you to be uncertain about whether you'll die or not. <laughs> oh, that's why you're the boss. Cause you just want to, you know, that's what you have to accept. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm, you know, what we do, let's say if someone, I'm giving you tons of examples. So let's say you're having a fear that you're going to um, have a panic attack while you drive. Right. Um, while you drive, I'm going to get in the car with you. I'm going to be sitting and we're going to take a drive together, right? That's the kind of work I do. We do as many exposures in sessions. So, okay, your fear is that you're going to die while you drive. I'm going to sit next to you and go, maybe you will, maybe you won't. Let's just see. I, I'm happy to take that risk, right? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. That's their key uncertainty words right there. Mm. Maybe I will. Like, a lot of people with health anxiety are really struggling right now because of COVID. Mm. Right. Right. What if this sore throat I have is COVID? What if my headache is COVID? What if my chest pain is COVID? You know, everything could feel like COVID. And so for them, I'll say, maybe you have COVID, maybe you don't go and engage in value-based behaviors until we get any reason to run, you know, run to the doctor right? Or what, get a test. What are value-based behaviors? Anything that you value is a value-based behavior. So while, while's my favorite word, while you have anxiety, you're going to do what you value. Do you value being with your kids? Do you value playing a guitar? Do you value doing your taxes? What do you value? Do that right? You don't have to like it, right? I don't like doing my taxes, but I really value staying out of jail. So I do them, right? And so while I have anxiety, I do my taxes. While, let's say a mom who has a fear around harming her baby or a fear that she's going to do something wrong with her child, while she has that thought or feeling, she's going to change her baby's diaper. She's going to maybe tickle and blow raspberries on his belly, right? That's the value-based behavior because fear wants you to run away. Fear wants you to remove yourself naturally, instinctually. That's what we do innately as human beings is naturally we want to remove ourselves. And in some situations, if a bus is coming for you, that's a really great behavior to do, right? That's effective and it's a response that is, you know, rational. But we don't want to run away from thoughts, we don't want to run away from fear all the time because it's maladaptive. Can we talk about Lionel? Mm. So, yeah. So last year I got myself into a massive, can I swear, shit show. It's can the I, right word. Yes, you can. This shit show's correct. <laughs> 
I um, started to have some physical symptoms um, that were concerning. I hung out. I tolerated some uncertainty for a while. And then I was like, you know what? My values are telling me that, you know, I've sat with this uncertainty for a long time. I think it's time to go to the doctor. They immediately became concerned. Um, and I went in to have an MRI and they found a lesion on my left cerebellum, which is still there. And still to this day, after seeing all the specialists, nobody knows what it is. And I go and have an MRI every four months to check. Um, and we named him Lionel. Lionel and I are friends. He hangs out in the back of my brain all day. And that's how I roll. Meanwhile, I text you. I'm like, fuck Lionel. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there was a period of time where I was like, fuck Lionel. I was like, Lionel, you have to get the fuck out. But doctors will will not remove Lionel because I'll probably be paralyzed if I did. Um, And until Lionel shows me any reason to remove him, him and I can coexist. So I bring up Lionel because you're talking about uncertainty, anxiety, Mm -hmm. mindfulness, self-compassion. While I have an effing lesion on my brain. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to still do this work. I'm going to give badass therapy, all this stuff. And I think you're really practicing what you preach, but you've also said two things that I Mm -hmm. now say to like every client with anxiety. Uh, So I want to piece this all together. As you go get your MRIs and like are dealing with this freaking thing on your brain, you're like, I refuse to catastrophize unless there's a catastrophe. I refuse to worry unless I'm told to worry. And that to me was a tattoo on my brain of like, Yes. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So I believe in, I'm not perfect at this, but I try my best to be as effective as I can. Meaning I'm going to do things that work. I'm going to try to stay away from things that don't work. It's easier said than done. I'm not perfect at it, but that's what I try and do. Me, I have Lionel. Lionel could, anytime Lionel could grow. And once he grows, we panic. That's the rule. I've been told that. Once he grows, we panic. It's on my brainstem. It would be very dangerous to have to remove it. It's not fun. I'm not going to lie. And, and yeah, it's anxiety provoking. But I refuse to go down a rabbit hole where I spend one minute on something that hasn't happened yet. So when I go, I, you know, what's three words? I always hold up my three fingers. I'm holding them up right now. My clients know what this means. There's three words, not happening now. We tend to things that are happening now, but right now, because I don't have a doctor in front of me saying, Kimberly, it's time to worry. It's time to act. I'm not going to tend to it. I'm going, every time it comes up, I just use it as an opportunity to bring, you know, kindness to my heart. And then I, I, I feel this sense of like, what, what's happening in front of you. And that's where I put my attention, right? My child, you, my work, um, you know, my ukulele, which I suck at playing, but whatever, right? Like it doesn't matter. Just re-engage in your life because until it is real, until it's actually happening, this bad thing, it's just a thought. It's a thought I have. I might have Lionel for the rest of my life. Him and I might be the long-term buds, right? And that's fine. 
Um, so that's sort of the work I do with that. And, and I'm really, you know, what do we know about compassion? Compassion is really not mothering and nurturing and kind and warm. But self-compassion is also very protective, right? Mama bear style, right? Like, don't you mess with me. I'll fucking put, take you down. So in this case, I move into that masculine um, self-compassion, which is no, I will not let you take away my life. I will not let you remove me from my life for one second over this one. So that's me sort of embracing that sort of more badass compassion piece. Okay, that's interesting. I'm, I consider myself like up on the self-compassion treatment and the like gendered approach and we know gen- whatever but like associating masculinity or femininity or stereotype traits to how we approach compassion is really interesting to me i didn't know about that mm. they call it, yeah so they call it the yin and yang oh. of self-compassion so the yin of compassion is this warm um i'm here for you what do you need i will i'll stand by you you know, it's okay that you're scared. That's yin compassion, right? Yang compassion is back off. I will protect you at all risks, at all counts. You will not take me down. That's the yang Mm. of compassion, right? Now, some people go, that's not compassion. That's just being a badass or that's just being a boss or that's just being, no, the definition of compassion is the genuine wish for your well-being. And that sometimes is the most compassionate thing you can do is set a boundary, right? Right. We know that, but that's true for your anxiety too. Sometimes we have to set strong boundaries with anxiety and be like, no anxiety. We're not doing this today. (laughs) We're not going down this road today because this is not helpful for you. It only creates more problems and you never feel better. So we're not doing Mm. this today. That's this ties into inner child work, which is very much a lens of mine of being a loving, Mm. warm, wise, compassionate parent to yourself. Parenting isn't Mm -hmm. just a free for all. And no matter what there's structure, there's boundaries, there's limitations and you saying like, no, mm-hmm. okay, what up? You're there. We're still going to work. We're still doing this. We still have, this isn't mm-hmm. effective. This isn't helpful to me. So I, I love how this all mm-hmm. plays together with, you know, truths within psychology, mm-hmm. compassion, mindfulness, yeah. boundaries. Um, it's beautiful. It is really beautiful. And it's so powerful because if we, you know, because with anxiety, whether that be social anxiety, phobias, OCD, whatever panic disorder is anxiety is something to be felt. Like, again, you won't die from it. You can feel it, but you do still need to be um, able to set boundaries with how much you give it your attention. Right. So same with like, you know, every four months when I, the week that I go to have it, my anxiety gets turned up. Right. It's because it knows the tests coming. It knows the, I hate MRIs like so much. I hate them so much that in and of itself isn't, again, I could get really sort of Mm. depressed in that week, but I still, again, tried my best to go. This is an opportunity, you know, strengthen, you know, what is scared Mm. inside you tend to that fear right but a lot of that week is me setting boundaries with fear and being like no I I have um and talking to fear like it's outside of my body like it's a third person right hey fear you can give it a name I see you I hear you thank you for showing up because I need you and fear is not bad we need fear 
thank you for showing up and making me aware of a possible scenario that might be dangerous, but I got this. I'm good. Right. I, 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 I know what to do here. You, you're, thank you for reminding me that I should be afraid, but I'm actually going to stay over here and, and be with Tiff. Right? I promise I know how to take care of us. I know what to do. If there's an emergency, I love this. You did this with Lionel. You gave it this name that de-escalates the amygdala's fear response to it instead of calling it a fucking tumor, right? Which is right. like every person right. with anxiety's core fucking fear. <laughs> Literally, like... I was like, what the heck? Like, why? Why is it this way? Well, it's funny because the diagnosis of it is... You know what my actual diagnosis is? is abnormal MRI brain. That is my official medical diagnosis. It's called an abnormal MRI brain. And I'm like, okay, this isn't working for me. I don't like it. And I, it's fine. I don't, I'm not going to change the name to remove my anxiety about it, but I need to be able to have a conversation about this where I can sort of jam with it and chat and chat with it. So, you know, Lionel was his name. <laughs> <laughs> I remember texting you and being like, you will not fucking believe what's happening right now. Oh, yeah, and I thought, <laughs> like, I'm like, it could have been anything. Like, brain tumors not allowed because, right, like, that's what we're all afraid of having is, like, the worst case scenario. But then you said something to me once. You're like, we, like, our worst case fear, like, the thing we're most afraid, like, we can tolerate, we can handle. Mm-hmm. And I, like, am very uncomfortable with that, but it's, you're right. And I tell that to my clients now. And I think about that, like, oh, you're going to have a fucking brain tumor. And one step at a time, like you are, you are figuring this out. You have abnormal MRI brain. Cool. Okay. Right. Not your favorite diagnosis, but not a game doesn't have to change the game. It's, it's, um, I'm so grateful you're willing to kind of like share that. I know you've been open about it on social media. So it's, but to see an example of like, okay, so yeah, like we actually can do this and like live with anxiety. I want to, I want to circle back to like anxiety, OCD really quick. Like when I teach psychology students about anxiety disorders, it's like this umbrella and OCD is, is fits under like this anxiety umbrella, but they're very different and like you were saying cbt is kind of the gold standard but not thought challenging necessarily for ocd or it, it's really tricky with mental health right. because we understand there's different symptoms and different treatments that are more effective for ocd versus generalized anxiety um yeah there's a lot of different ways that anxiety manifests but i, I i'm just kind of wanting to to speak to that that anxiety isn't anxiety isn't anxiety yeah. And ERP mm-hmm. is the most effective treatment for OCD specifically, whereas a generalized anxiety disorder, CBT is okay with that. Yeah, yeah. Think of it just the way that I was trained and I find it really helpful is think of CBT, the three letters, as all being the same size font, right? With, with um, let's say, depression, you might make the C a little bigger font and the B a little smaller because the C is going to be super important, 
right? For social anxiety, they might be even, right? Like the cognitive piece is really important, but the behavioral piece is really important. So, you know, the font would stay the same. With OCD, the C would be a really small font. It's still important, but the B would be a bigger font. So you're still using the same tools, but the font, the, the, the degree in which we use them is different. Um, and, and depending on the severity of the disorder will also depend on how, whether we change that font as well, right? If someone's got agoraphobia and they're not leaving the house, we're going to spend a lot of time doing more behavioral work, right? Got to get them out of the house, got them back, back to work or doing the things they love. So yeah, I agree. If that helps people sort of, that was really helpful for me in conceptualizing visually that we're all doing CBT, but sometimes the, the d- differences in the cognitive component and the behavioral will change depending on the disorder. Oh, that was a really good teaching moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad it's, it's important. And that's why I say it's really hard for people when they, let's say, like I said, they're on an anxiety webpage and they're like, oh, I should be challenging my thoughts. That's not wrong. It's just that you don't want to be doing more of that than the behavioral work. You want to be doing way more behavioral work. ERP is behavioral therapy. So that's how we sort of push that together. Um, I have like rapid fire questions. Ready? Go. Okay. Medication, medications in the role of OCD treatment. Yes. Yes. Um, So quickly, if you had to choose between ERP and medication, you would choose ERP. It has better outcomes. But better than just ERP alone is ERP with medication. Together, they are your lightning bolt right? So that's sort of how we work it. So if you, okay, first best outcomes, ERP with medication. Second would be ERP alone. Third option would be medication alone if you don't have access to ERP. SSRIs typically, but you need to work with like a psychiatrist or APRN or someone who Mm -hmm. prescribes to figure that out. Or is there like something that's pretty fail-proof? Uh, no, go to your psychiatrist because it depends for every person. SSRIs are the gold standard, but you usually need to be at an OCD dose, not at a depressive dose. And that's why the psychiatrist needs yeah. to come into play. Sometimes you need an antipsychotic, not because of a psychosis. It's not, they're not the same at all. But sometimes if your insight is really no, low, um, an antipsychotic can be super helpful. Okay, next. This is connected. Any mental illness is influenced by both genetics and environment. Is there something you can speak to with that, with OCD, a combo, when we see it manifest for folks, is it lifelong? So this connects to my next piece of, you said people recover, and I'm curious about that. Right. Yeah. So, um, yes, as much as we know scientifically, it is both nature and nurture, right? Um, We definitely see a genetic component with OCD. If If you have OCD, it's highly likely that someone in your family tree has had OCD or some kind of OCD spectrum disorder. Um, So very much so. The environmental factors, I mean, number one, adolescence is a usual time for it to sort of flame up pretty strong, but it can show up as early as two, three and four, right? And that's particularly when we look at genetics. There is a lot of uh, 
controversy back and forward in the OCD community about how the role trauma plays in, in OCD. The thing to remember is everybody's different and OCD doesn't care. You know, it just, OCD just shows up. It There's often, it can show up for absolutely no reason at all. It is nothing to do with who you are as a human, right? It, a lot of people with OCD think they're being punished because for something they've done. No, you know, OCD sometimes just shows up out of nowhere. Um, and I've had clients in their 70s get OCD, right? So there's no right way to have it. And when I talk about recovery, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, it's really important that we slow down here because the definition of recovery for OCD is very much about wording, right? I don't like the word cure because the cure brings along this stigma that you're not supposed to have any fear anymore. And I think if we, we, if we use that language and we say, let's get rid of your fear. Um, I think that makes, puts a bad spin on fear when fear is not a bad thing. And we don't want to make fear the problem. Fear is not the problem. How we respond to fear is the problem, right? So recovery isn't the absence of your obsessions. It's usually the absence of compulsions, meaning that when you have an intrusive, repetitive thought, you just allow it. Hey, what's up, thought? I can see you're here. I can see you're trying to get me to run away, but I'm going to have a conversation with Tiffany right now. You can come and stay, right? That's recovery. I'm so glad you're breaking this down. <laughs> and I like how you said, look, we need to slow down on that because I think recovery is a it's a controversial idea with mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and this is going to take us into like my next question. Comorbidity with OCD. Um, mm -hmm. Comorbidity meaning, you know, you can have kind of two mental health diagnoses together at once. Mm -hmm. What are folks going to see OCD kind of show up with typically? What, what else likes to piggyback with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me just back, back up one more second, just to be really clear. Um, I think recovery is having fear and living your life anyway. Okay. So I just want, I want to say that because that's doable, right? The goal of not having fear or the goal of not having thoughts or not having anxiety or panic is going to probably get you in the hole, but having fear and living your life anyway, that's what we call recovery. And anybody can do that. That's the cool part, right? There's no, you know, not everyone can get rid of their thoughts and not everyone can get their anxiety to go down or stop having panic, but everyone can live their life according to mm. what's right for them, right? So then comorbidity, uh, okay, the cool thing is um, OCD doesn't discriminate. <laughs> it it doesn't have any care about it. It will be happy, every, you know, everyone can get it gender it doesn't care about your gender it doesn't care about race it's it's very much a part we're all in this one together you know um it's very commonly linked with eating disorders um that's what i see the most again that's sort of why i resonate with it so much so much um it's very common with any of the other anxiety disorders you know, social anxiety is a huge one because if you're doing a ton of compulsions and people can see you, you're probably going to have social anxiety about that as well, right? 90% um, of people with OCD, in my experience, have coexisting depression. 
and either generalized anxiety or a phobia of some description. Right. Um, in addition, it's common that someone with OCD under the umbrella of OCD is what we call a BFRB, body focused repetitive behavior, which is skin picking, hair pulling, or nail biting. Right. Now, a lot of people are going to be like, I nail bite and I don't have OCD. Probably that. That's totally fine. Nail biting, if done repetitively, um, is what we would call a, a body-focused repetitive behavior, right? Just like hair pulling and skin picking. And the degree in which you do it would determine whether you would seek treatment or not. Some people, you know, bite their nails all day and they're okay with it. Some people do it all day and they don't feel like they can stop and it interferes and interrupts with their life and they sometimes um, pull their hair and pick their skin and bite their nails so much that they completely lose track of time. That's when we would start treatment. BFRBs fall under the obsessive compulsive. Is that an obsessive compulsive spectrum disorder? Mm -hmm. It used to be an impulse control disorder, but then thankfully they changed it in the DSM to um, be under the OCD spectrum umbrella. Are you seeing more in 2020 with folks just being dysregulated and higher levels of anxiety starting to pull hair if they're bored or, or pick or nail bite? Is that environmental stressors? Could that set this off? It can. Absolutely. Yeah. What we know about BFRBs is, and this is another specialty of mine, is some folks pick because they're bored or pull. Some picks pick and pull because they're overstimulated. And so it can be one or both, right? And and the treatment involves identifying the triggers and intervening at those places. So, yeah, some people who are super bored and at home and have no stimulation, yes, they have had an incredible increase in hair pulling and skin picking and nail biting. Um, For those who are, um, you know, on Zoom all day, find that incredibly overstimulating, they might find that they're finishing the day up with scabs and blisters on their arms and legs because, you know, they're overstimulated. Um, And so it depends on the person. It's it's very personal and individual. So you would identify the triggers and intervene at those places. This is going to, again, sounds like combined the mindfulness kind of the values-based judgment, mm-hmm. like, and meeting, meeting that where it is. So what does that look like? Well, um, to bring in one more acronym, really? <laughs> the, treatment, the treatment for BFRBs is called habit reversal training. It is another form of CBT. Again, it is a, a capital, it's a bigger font B and a smaller font C right? If we were to use that, that metaphor. Um, and habit reversal training involves identifying the triggers of where you pick and pull. Um, of course, medication is important too, but the behavioral piece is um, either covering the surfaces that you pick and pull or giving yourself a competing response to something you can fiddle with. This is where fidget spinners before they were cool used to be a core piece of our treatment. Right Now you can get them everywhere. 10 years ago, you would have to special order those things. Right. But now it's like, Oh, you can get them at the supermarket. But we, that used to be a huge part of our treatment as it still is. So cool. 
that yeah. we know yeah. what this is. We know a treatment. We know what works. You can specialize in this. Like I fucking love therapy. Like you can help. Like yeah. people are not alone. You're not crazy. Like this, this stuff happens and we know how to treat it. Like that gives me so much hope. Right. The cool thing is with both all the disorders that I treat, the thing I probably love the most, I mean, this is, I love so many things, but one of the things I love the most is they come in and they tell you what they've so ashamed and they've been secretive about and isolating themselves because of for years. And I just go, okay, here's what we're going to do. Right. And I just tell them and they're like, wait, what? Like, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, yeah, I do this all the time. Like I, there are millions of you, you know what I mean? That's so cool. Right. Cause they're coming from a place of like, Oh my God, I'm literally the only person who has this. And it's like, no, there's a treatment for this. I, we've done this a million times. There are a million, million of you who you're not alone. We've done, this is, you know, you're not crazy. This is just something yes. that's happened to you. Oh, I love it. You are brilliant. You are well-spoken. You're so smart and just so cool and compassionate. It just oozes from you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm lucky. I love what I do. And for some reason, it just, I jam with it. It's my thing, right? Like, yeah, we're going to face that fear. Yeah, we're going to do it. Like, let's do it. Please be my therapist. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Y'all. Or you could just call me and we would just have those conversations because a lot, I mean, the truth is I'm not going to say for one second, just to break it down. This is still not my natural default either. Let's just say, right. No one naturally defaults on these tools. Um, They're just tools. They're things you practice. They're skills for life. So we can talk about that anytime. We can keep going, but you know, we only got five minutes left for you to tell us where everyone can find you, listen to your podcast, get your courses. Oh, shoot, you got a book coming out. Like, give us the scoop. Yeah, so you can see me on Instagram. I'm at Kimberly Quinlan. But my mom put an E in there, so it's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y, Quinlan. Um, Everyone in my family has, like, a random letter (laughs) thrown in somewhere. Uh, (laughs) but you can get me at CBT school. That's where I have my psychoeducation platform. So basically I have a private practice in Calabasas, California, but because so many people weren't able to access the kind of treatment I do, we created a ton of courses for people who don't have access or the resources. And so you can go to cbtschool.com and get courses on OCD or BFRBs. Oh, and I have a podcast called Your Anxiety Toolkit. Um, and yeah, I have a book coming out um, through New Harbinger Publications in October of 21. You'll be back on the podcast then to break down the book. But you wrote it. You did it. Oh, I did. Oh, 57,000 words. <laughs> no one's counting, but you are counting. <laughs> oh, I was, oh, I was counting. They're like, we need it on the dot. So I was like literally erasing single words to try and shorten yeah, yeah. it. Hey, do you know how many courses you have? Yeah. I have three courses, but two on the way. Mm-hmm. Two on OCD, one on BFRBs, but I'll have a social anxiety one and a depression one for OCD coming out in January. Oh. Congrats, you little badass. Yeah. Um, we'll link that yeah. in the show notes. Uh, and then an important question because, you know, it me, if you had to get a face tattoo, what would it be? 
Well, that's funny because I've literally been having a whole conversation around tattoos. I actually, I have not got a tattoo. I want one on my face. I want one on my okay. wrist. Not on my if I had to have one on my face, no brainer. It's a beautiful day to do hard things. No brainer. Duh. Forehead right there. Yeah. It is a beautiful day to do hard things. Yes. Because then I would have to say it less. <laughs> you just point right here. Yeah. I'd just be like, my clients would say something and I'd be like, read the forehead. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, you are a dream. I literally took three pages of notes throughout this podcast. Thank you for sharing generously so much education. I, I mean, every therapist should listen to this to have education and awareness because we learn nothing like this in grad school, right? And unless you see mm, this, nothing. Yeah. Exactly. I knew nothing until I got my internship. And in fact, I was taught the opposite of what scientifically is the correct treatment. Oh, so. Thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, obviously anyone listening, but I hope, you know, healthcare providers and clients and humans and loved ones alike. I mean, I, I hope everyone can listen. This is so great. Thanks, sis. My pleasure. I love you too. I love you too. Thanks for listening to the Therapy Thoughts podcast, but remember, this podcast is not therapy. This is for general informational purposes only. The information on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, illness, or disease. This also isn't intended to be financial, legal, medical, or therapeutic advice. Make sure you're always working with your own personal, licensed mental health counselor. May you be well. I appreciate you tuning in and supporting the Therapy Thoughts podcast. If you want to dive deeper into intuitive eating and body image and self-love, head over to tiffanyrow.com. It's the hub of all of my courses, the podcast, my merch, and information about doing counseling and coaching with me. I hope you guys stick around for more. We have lots of exciting interviews and thought leaders coming onto the podcast. So until next time, may you be well.